How did you get into collecting seashells? Well, that's an interesting question because I'm really not sure how it evolved. I know my first recollection of a shell was when we went to Texas, Galveston, saw the ocean for the first time as a child. And I took my little bit of savings or my allowance money, went into a store and bought shells because I was just fascinated by by shells, the beauty, the intricacy. I don't know what it was. And then years later, after we were mar- I was married, we went in our little camper with our two young children and headed to Florida. And we camped on the beach in Baya Honda State Park. And then the tide went out and our boys had the little buckets and they would go out and pick up all things, sorts of things. And it's like, what is all this? What are we seeing here? I mean, it was just amazing. And then the people next to us camped were actually collecting shells. So that just opened up this whole world to me of like, wow, what am I, what a beautiful things that I'm seeing. Little did I know or realize at that time that shells or mollusks are the second largest phylum in the animal kingdom. So there's, you know, almost 100,000 species of shells to get to know here. That's a, that's a vast array or, or a, that's a, that's a very big field, isn't it's it? It's a big field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And shells are everywhere in the world, you know, and people collect shells everywhere in the world. And let me ask you this. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up a shell here. Well, I need a crane, I think, to help me with this one. And I'm going to ask the question. I don't know quite the best way to put this, but this looks like it was cast in concrete or made of plastic or some such thing. This might not be representative of every shell in the ocean, but that's a seashell. It's a big fella. So I'm going to ask you what in the world this is, and then I'd like you to explain to me, because I see these as marvels of creation, utter marvels of creation. I need you to explain what this is, and then tell me what a seashell is. Maybe we should do it one way and the other, but we'll do it the other way and then the one. What's this? This is a beauty. That is a syrinx. This is from Australia. This is actually an example of the largest gastropod being a one-unit shell, which 80% of the shells are gastropods. As opposed to bivalves like oysters. That's right, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this one is a representative of the species, but the largest ones are much larger, the record shell, but this is the largest gastropod in the world. And um, from Australia. Which part of Australia do you know? Well, uh, Western Australia. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've actually collected some in Broome. Does Broome's location, isolated on the northwestern coast of Australia, does that lend itself in some way to being a great shell destination? Well, there's a lot of good species of shells. Australia is, okay. is really good shelling in And Australia. this is an example of one. And this is an example of one. That's this fantastic. Is, you know, an extreme example. Now, now, someone camping on the beach is going to find one of these on no, the beach? No, no. No, when we were in Broome, we were at a equinox of the of the tides of the sun, and there was thirty foot minus tides. So oh, that okay. means that where there was thirty foot of water, the tide went out far enough that there, you were now could walk there. So that's a lot of beach. That that's wasn't a lot of beach, before. and mostly it's not beach; it's rocky uh, puddles, holes, all kinds of. Just fascinating, fascinating sea life that you're seeing there. 
So, so, and this is laying, the one I collected was, of course, much smaller than that. I think I've given it away. But um, it was laying in the sandy mud. Mm-hmm. But to think that this grew from a little egg. Most people don't realize that shells grow. They're egg-laying. They lay eggs in masses. I think we have some examples we can show you. But there's some, you know... Little growth series, and we could find these in these little pools, these little teeny tiny shells. So these grow from eggs. They grow from eggs. Shells are egg layers. They lay in mass, like amphibians, you know. So let me ask you the the basic, maybe ignorant person's question, but I think there's a lot of people who resonate with this question. What's a seashell? What are we looking at when we're looking at at a seashell? We're looking at some animal's home. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. So there's an animal, there, not now, of course, but there was an animal inside this. That lived in that house. That, well, that in- okay, I think the easy thing, you think about an oyster or a mussel or a scallop that many people are familiar with, there's, that's the animal, there's the, the casing is the home. Mm-hmm. Similar principle here. Exactly. Uh, so how does this happen? Something laid an egg and it... Grew. It grew, just, how, like, how, a, just like a baby, just like a child, just like... So how did these grow? Just, there's a, the animal... In, in the shell, uh-huh. secretes in its mantle cavity, part of the shell, secretes this liquid calcium. It's like a calcium carbonate. That's what it's made up of, like a bony structure. It's just like reverse of a body. The animal lives inside the hard surface. We have our skin and our bone structure internal. So the shell grows. He always lives in that same shell. He doesn't move out of the shell. He constantly is growing. His rate of growth would depend on food availability, water temperature, other factors in the sea. And he just continues to grow and maintain. At some point, he re- reaches adulthood. And then you can see on some shells where they, they're continually keeping their shell maintained. It's like you maintain your body. They maintain, the sh- they maintain their shell. I have to ask you the question everybody wants to know the answer to. And that is people like me who we go to the beach and we're always looking, my wife even more so, looking down, looking for a shell, hoping to find a nice shell. But it seems like there are some beaches you can go to over and over and over and over again. They don't have any shells. So, so the amateur enthusiast, the person who just likes to find a pretty shell at the beach, what do we need to know to increase our chances of finding a nice shell when we go to the beach? Well, you need to know what you're looking for. That helps. I wouldn't have a clue. A shell Anything will do. Yeah. Something well, nice. Then, then you look and you find it's, it's a known fact that all the west coast of Florida is good shelling. Sanibel in particular, because of the way the, sh- the coastline is one way and the island sits the opposite way to that thing. So if you look at a map and you look at the Florida coastline and then you look at Sanibel and Captiva and the, the other islands up from there, they're sitting horizontally to that or vertically to that. And so there's something about the currents and things that bring in a more abundance of shells. And, of course, storms do this. You know, summertime shelling is not so great, but storms and tides, following the tides, the moon phase. So it sounds like real estate then, location, location, location. Exactly. So when we go to the beach in Southern California by Malibu, there were never any shells. And you go to Daytona Beach, it looks like there's never any shells. 
And that's just the way it is, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. They don't live there. No, they, <laughs> they don't live there. They don't live so there. where do they live? Well, they live, actually most, the majority of shells live in the first atmosphere of the ocean, the first, like, 33 feet. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that first, what we call the atmosphere, you know, you go down 33, 66, the feet, you know, as you're going down. But, but shells occur in thousands and thousands of feet of water. Now, those, that's when it gets to be a little more uncommon. Actually, uh-huh. most people don't collect. I've, I've had the privilege of collecting in deep water. Mm. But um, most people obviously don't even ever see those shells unless you go to a shell show, shell show or shell shop where they sell shells. And that's kind of fun to do. It's like if you go to Sanibel, I keep bringing Sanibel up because it's one of my favorite places. And that's kind of the, 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 the shell place capital shell. of the U.S. Yeah. Probably. And they have pictures or examples. They'll say, what local shells. These are things you're capable of finding on this beach. Ah, uh, okay. And, of course, to me, you need a book. You need books, yeah. mul- multiple books to look and see pictures of. And it's like, oh, I can find that, or I will look for that, or I think I found something that looks like this. And, and that's, that's the fun of it. It's the exploration. It's the thrill of the hunt. Yeah. So when I was a little kid growing up in New Zealand, we'd go to Raglan, a, a black sand beach on the west coast of the North Island, you, you're only going to find what you're able to find in that state. You're kind of wasting your time if you're hoping to find something really special. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And shells are endemic to certain areas. You know, okay. you know they live, they live in certain areas. So you have to go to you have to go to where they live. Now I understand that there's a shell that's been named after you. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to have to take a look at that. We'll have to. And what I want to ask you about is shells in the Bible. Does the Bible? speak much about shells. What does it have to say? Well, one of the most interesting things that I think a lot of people don't realize that there's a lady in the Bible in Acts who was very hospitable. She was a businesswoman, which was pretty rare for Bible times. Her name was Lydia. And it says that Lydia was a seller of purple. Purple. Now, most people don't realize that that purple in that day came from a mollusk, from a shell. From a shell. From a shell. So her business, her enterprise... It was from shells. ...was connected to, to shells. Shelling. Uh-huh. They were shells that were shallow water shells. And I'm assuming, although we don't know, that she probably hired men or somebody to go down into the sea, collect these shells, and then they would break them. And then there's a small gland in this shell, mm-hmm. and it secretes this purple... And it takes hundreds, maybe literally thousands of these shells to make just a very small dab of purple dye. So that's why purple is associated with royalty and actually is today to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You know? So Lydia, the seller of purple, purple. in the book of Acts, Acts. Mm-hmm. was dealing with something that she derived from a seashell. seashell. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. So she probably associated with the wealthy. It was only the wealthy that could afford this. You know, it took a, a lot of shells to make this little dab of dye, and then they had to put the cloth into this dye. I don't know if she sold the cloth or she sold the actual vial of the purple. I'm not quite sure how. We don't. We don't know that. In a moment, I want to ask you about shells in the Bible. Shells in the Bible. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
more and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thanks for joining us today. I'm talking with Merrily McNeilis, a shell collector, uh, not the kind of shell collector you were when you were a child or I was when I was a child. We're talking about serious shell collecting. And now I want to ask you about shells in the Bible. And I wonder if you can explain this to me. That shell that you're holding is called Murex banderas. Murex are a family of shells. They're a carnivorous family. And that shell was one of the shells that was collected in Phoenicia by probably fishermen or workers, collected this shell for Lydia, and collected them in large quantities because it took a lot of dye. You can imagine that shell. They probably whacked it with a hammer or some similar object. Took the animal out, took one gland, one small part of that shell, and put all these pieces together and came up with this dye. This dye doesn't turn purple till it hits the air, and then it becomes purple. So this is Lydia, the seller of purple, purple we read about in the Book of Acts. Right. Mm -hmm. And that purple was extracted from From that shell. There are are other murex that also excrete it, but that was the most common one in that area. So where Lydia was, were these shells nearby or did they have to be brought from quite a distance? Oh, maybe it's 30 or 40 miles from the, okay. from the sea, you know. And then, then the dye was brought up, probably cooked or something, somehow cooked down. And then this purple was extracted from that. It took about an ounce of that purple dye to, to make just a, a small fraction of fabric purple. Yeah. So you can understand why it was so costly. But she was quite the businesswoman, yeah, she was, wasn't she? Yes, and fairly successful because you realize only the upper echelon of the society could afford the purple. So they made contact with Lydia. So she was quite quite a lady. So Lydia, the seller of purple, uh, derived her income from seashells. Correct. Just like mm-hmm. this. And it took hundreds, probably thousands of shells to get the purple that she needed to dye cloth. Now, these shells are still there today? Not so many. They oh. actually almost became extinct really? because of the overcollecting of that shell. Now, you'll have to pardon my ignorance. I just thought these things grew, like uh, you plant a seed in the ground and a tree grows, and somehow this just grows. But these, every shell, and correct me if I'm wrong, every shell is made by the little creature who inhabits the shell. Correct. So, so looking at this from a creation point of view, you've got a little guy, some, some creature making this 
So, so he's laying down the. Uh, but he starts. He starts here. He starts here at the top. At the top, this little, and he and he whirls around. He's got a spire, a center column, columbellum, in the center of the shell. Right, I see. Okay, if you look in there, in the yeah. aperture, you can see there's a center column, and he he works around that column, and it grows. And when he gets to here, he says, "I want a spike there," and he builds a spike. And he goes half an inch and he says, I want to put another spike. And this is all architected and designed and made by that little... That uh, little animal. How complex a creature is he? Very, very simple. Very wow. simple. So a simple creature... Makes that beautiful shell. It's, uh, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. I'd like you to tell me about some of your favorite shells. I don't know that you have a favorite. I'm not going to ask you what's your favorite. But this is where we want to talk a little bit more about design and creation. Because as I've considered some of these things, it just seems to me to be compelling evidence that we worship a creator, that these things, I guess you could believe if you wanted to that this evolved, but that would take a whole lot more faith than believing it was Created, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so tell me the story about some fascinating shells. I'm gonna look at some of the shells. I'm put. We'll talk about this later. This is the babies here. But these are cypria or cowries. They seem to be a, a fascinating shell that most people like them because they're shiny. Yeah. The reason they're shiny is because the animal, the animal that lives inside the shell, actually has a thin membrane that covers the shell. They're beautiful, aren't they? And they are. The, the colors and the designs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they are amazing. Where would you find something like this? That's, that's Lucadon, and that is the Philippines. Okay. Are these deep, all? Deep water, very deep water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and uh, how do you fi- how do you find a deep water shell? It comes up and washes up onto the beach, or you no, got to go down usually there. Usually, they're netted by by fishermen. They have put on. They actually have a net called tangle nets. Okay. They kind of drag it along the bottom, and things get caught in the tangle net. They're they're, they're, they're remarkably designed. What can you tell me about how how the, how these work or function? Well, they grow stuff? also from the center column, and they just grow around with their when they're immature. The final thing is to make the lip and the teeth, and, and collectors look at the teeth as an identif- identifying characteristic. But you hardly ever find one that's broken or immature. It seems like they really do all their development in, you know, like big, big stages of uh-huh. development. And the other ones that we've got on the tray here, they're all beautiful. These okay, are yeah, this is Cypria fultoni, and this is an interesting shell, because this shell is only found in the stomach of a muscle cracker fish. <laughs> In other words, the fish comes along, eats the shell. Eats that whole eats, shell. Eats that whole shell. And then people that go fishing find the fish, and then they open up the fish, and lo and behold, there's this shell inside the fish. So that's the only place you find them, inside that's the fish? That's the only fish they found them. Well, why don't you find them somewhere else? Well, nobody goes diving there. It's just in a, a small area where okay. they're at. And... So the fish, they're, they're fishing. And they've discovered these shells in these fishing and found out that the shells were more valuable, of course, than the fish. Yeah. So 
So if these shells are only found in the belly of the fish you oh, the ate muscle them, cracker fish. There can't be that many of these shells around. No, there aren't too many of them no. around. Right. So you speak about something. Some shells are valuable. Right. Quite valuable, some shells? Some can be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. And, and this has kind of been polished over or maybe painted over to make it shiny because the fish is going to start digesting. The digestive juices of the fish are going to start really going to town on that shell. Yeah. So they find a lot of them that are, in fact, that one's, you know, not really gem. You can imagine gem quality would not be very difficult to find, would not be too available. This next one over, that, that again looks very similar to the first one we looked at. Same place? Is it the Philippines as well? Yes, this is Philippines, and this is broad rapai, and this is another uncommon Cypria. Okay. And this, uh, and I'm these intrigued two by are that called, one this is, this is Rosalie, and this is, they call this snow on the mountain, but I, I feel like that this maybe has been altered, that maybe they kind of, because they're very clever in fixing shells up a little bit to make them look good. You know, you can polish them or you can buff them or you can do something. But there is, underneath the shell, there's this the white. There's white as it's growing, and then it closes, and you can find in, in the shell shop or whatever, you can find rosalie in different stages of the white showing. Sometimes the white is zaggy, and sometimes it's not. But if you look, highly look under the magnifying glass, I'm not sure that that actually grew that way. I you know, bought that a long... Actually, my husband bought that for me a long time ago. Now, there's a shell I've seen, and it has the most amazing way of closing together, fitting together. When you look at it, it's, it's got this incredible design, which to me suggests it had to have been designed Design. by an intelligent creator. Tell me about that one. Well, it's right here. This is a cardium. It's an allied cardium, and it, it hinges. I mean, the whole mechanism here. I mean, no, no human can design that. I mean, maybe. But it fits together. Look at that. It's just the most beautiful thing. But not only, not only the hinging, but look at the, the rows. The, it's a beautiful, beautiful oh, It's cardium. almost like, um, like teeth or something. Like yeah, that. not teeth. Yeah, but, but just... There are rows of them. Like rows of beautiful pearls. Do, do many shells have that kind of um, irregular edge that close to not, not quite that pronounced. So where would you find something like this? I'm not going to find it uh, at, at wherever my local beach might be. No, no, no. That's a very large specimen of that shell, yeah. and that's a super shell. And this is found in what part of the world? In the Philippines. In the Philippines again. So this is not the first time you've mentioned the Philippines. Is the Philippines known as a place that has some impressive shells? It is. It is? It is. And what do you think it is about the Philippines? or, or It's the water, the islands, the habitat. You know, think, about, think about the places in the world where there's beautiful habitat, the islands, the, the reefs, the, you know, not deep, real deep water. But although there is deep water in some of those places because some of these things have been coming up in tangle nets. They're found in tangle nets. I've got some other ones that... They're found in tangle nets. They're just amazing. When I look at this, to me, these are just incredible design pieces. I can't look yeah. at that and, and think that nature just got lucky. No. That couldn't evolve. There's no way. 
No, that's really something else. So what are these little guys we got here? This is Harpa Costata, another little pretty harp shell. This is from uh, Seychelles. Oh, yeah? Uh-huh, rare shell. And this is a uh, Epitonium rugosum. And these two shells are fairly uncommon, but I've collected them, found them myself. So that was, this is Cardinalis, and this is Granulatus. Now, when you find something like that, do you always know what it is you've found? I mean, you know more about this than the average person, and you see it and you go, aha. Or will you find a shell and say, that's interesting, now what is this? Well, usually I kind of know. Yeah. I'm looking for something specific. Or I recognize, first of all, cones. The cone is a very common shape. You know, it's recognizable as a cone shell. Cone shells in the Atlantic are very, very, there aren't many species of them in the Atlantic. The color is amazing. You usually don't see the red. So you know immediately, like this one was kind of covered in some stuff. You know, I cleaned it up, obviously, but... I knew immediately what I had. In the same way with this one, it was kind of covered up, but I knew what it was because of the shape. So after collecting shells for a few years now, how often is it that you stumble across, well, probably you don't stumble across too many, you you purposely go find them. How often now do you find something you've never seen before? Well, more often than you think. Oh, really? Yeah, even in Florida, even in Sanibel where I go. So you can go back to Sanibel for the umpteenth time and see something that you've never stumbled on before. That's right. Well, that's a bit of an adventure, isn't it? It is. It is. It's, I suppose when you think about it, too, I read a statistic that said something like, it, something like the oceans are vast, but human beings have only ever explored about 5% of the ocean or some infinitesimally small amount of the ocean. And if that's the case, then I guess there's a lot out there that's waiting to be found. I suppose. Well, wonderful. I mentioned before that there is a seashell named after you. So in just a moment, I'd like to see it and find out the story behind the Merrily Eye. I don't know if there'll ever be a John Eye seashell, so I'd like to have a look at that. Don't go away. We'll be right back in just a moment. What does the Bible say about astrology? Why do bad things happen to good people? What color is Jesus? If you have a question, we'd love to find an answer for you from the Bible. Line up online from It Is Written TV. This is Pearl. When Pearl heard about the Eyes for India initiative, she decided she was going to take matters into her own hands. When Pearl's birthday came around, she invited all of her friends over for a birthday party, and the theme of the party was Eyes for India. She told her friends about the thousands of people in India who couldn't see, and how this critical eye surgery could change their lives. Instead of gifts, Pearl asked that her friends bring donations for this important project. Because of Pearl's influence, seven people are now able to see. Her story inspired our brand new mission kit. It's a box that has everything you need to fundraise your own project for Eyes for India. Whether it's at the front desk of your business, part of your small group, or a special church project, this kit is guaranteed to change lives. 
We can't wait to hear about all the creative ways you find to make this resource come to life, just like Pearl. Thanks for joining me today. Our conversation today is with Merrily McNeilis, an avid shell collector, Merrily, someone who has even had a shell named after her. What's this little one? Well, that is called Conus Merrilii. Conus Merrilii. It's called Conus because... It's a family of cone shell. Cone shape. Mm-hmm. And it's called Merrilii because you discovered this one? Yes. How in the world, well, maybe the answer is, is pretty simple, but how in the world do you discover an undiscovered shell? Well, I had the privilege of shelling with the Smithsonian on a submersible on the island of Curacao. And we dove at about 900 to 1,000 feet. And along the way, we picked up bottles or anything like debris, ocean debris. And we also were looking for specific shells that were endemic to that area of the world. And then when we came up from the dive, we would sift through this debris and in the, working in the microscopes because we were looking at it for really small things and then, you know, the bigger things. And this was one of the, maybe pretty close to one of the bigger things that we've found. And you saw this and you said, hey, I've never seen that before. Right. And really, everybody said, well, yeah, yes. And folks who were with you said the same thing. Yes. And they said, yes, we think that might be something different. So we take this off to the back to Washington, D.C., back to the Smithsonian, back to the, let the malacologists, the curators, have a look-see. Have you found a second one? No. No? No. I guess if you found this at 1,000 feet in Curacao, then maybe you're not likely to find one washed up on Sanibel Island. No. No. No, that won't happen. Fantastic. All right, let's talk about another couple of uh, interesting shells, fascinating shells, the ones that you think are cool, or they be? Well, there's a family called Epitoniums. Common name is Wendell Trap. And they're a beautiful family. I think they're intricately designed. They're worldwide. They're in cold water. They're in warm water. They're on the beach. They're deep water. And um, this is an example here. This is where goes some here. You can just look at the intricate design. Now, the, the Wendell Trap is German for staircase. Do you think many people go and uh, they're at the beach or, or on the rocky shore and they find something without knowing that they've just discovered something rare or exquisite? Do you think yes. that happens a lot? I think that happens a lot. Yeah. It's probably good that we don't know what we picked up, looked at, and discarded while carrying on. Yeah. But some of these are just so remarkably beautiful and detailed as well. That's why it's nice to have a book. You know, I would recommend if you're going to go specifically shelling in a place or you want to go and you're interested in shells, that you would say, I think I need a book for this area to see what's available here, you know. Now, you've found some interesting shells that aren't shells or that aren't shells anymore. Fossils. Oh, yes. Tell me about those, because I believe you've found some or you know of some that have been found in the least likely places. Right. Well, that, that brings up the subject of the chambered nautilus, nautilus pombolus. And I think we all are kind of familiar with the nautilus. It's a very beautiful shell and very common shell. But there are about three species of a nautilus. And um, 
the thing about a nautilus is that it it it's a solid compact thing but it it goes up and down and there's the chambers within the nautilus there's 36 chambers and there's a siphonal tube that connects the chambers and you know when we go down if you dive your body contracts because of the weight of the water and the shell is down in the deep and then it comes up and then it has to go back down again so it regulates the pressures through this tube in the shell and these are simple creatures these aren't are they? yes but the nautilus is one of the most complex of the of the mollusks it's a cephalopod the same family as a squid and octopus so they're more intelligent of the of the mollusks but um the chamber nautilus is also, I, when I see that, you look at the design. We can look at one cu- cut in half, and you can see, and you can see the principle, the mathematical principle of Fibonacci, and the, the golden mean or the design. And that's, that's to me, a, a sign of creation, of nature. I mean, God designed this perfect symmetry for strength, for durability. It's the same symmetrical pattern that we see in vegetation and other things in the world. You know that, that God created, and it's just that—that's not by accident. That is a divine design. Absolutely, it just has to be. It has to be. And what is interesting to me is we've got nautilus, a lot of fossil nautilus around, not much different than the original. Where where is the evolution here? Mm-hmm. When you're finding them today, and this thing is millions of years old, or so they claim these rocks. But yet, how can that be? So explain this to me. This looks remarkable. Go ahead. This is a slice of a chambered nautilus. And I would like you to look at the shell, and this is the intricate part of the shell. As this nautilus grows, he lives in each section, and he grows and he matures. He closes off a section, and this little opening in here, he regulates his buoyancy through those chambers because he's he moves his 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 shell, this animal that lives in here, he is be in the bottom during the day. At night, he may move up to feed in a hundred change, maybe like a hundred feet or more. Uh-huh. And so that that can't happen unless you regulate the chamber. So unlike an oyster, which is a shellfish that sits on the bottom and doesn't right, really right. move, no, this one goes up and down by means of these. Chambers. chambers. And if you look, there's these little apertures that allow something. Is what, what, what goes through this, air or water? I don't know. I'm not sure. I think it might be a little bit of both, possibly. And something passes through here to increase, increase or and decrease, decrease the buoyancy, the buoyancy of, this creature. of this creature. And he right. bobs along. And he's, he, now remember, he looks like an He's got a lot of tentacles. He's, yeah. he's feeding for fish. He's, he's, he's eating fish and squid and other little things, other little animals. And here is a nautilus. This is a, this is a little strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the whole thing. Right. Pretty much. And when you open it up like that, that's what you see. Right. And this evolved? No, of course not. Of course not. He this is, this is remarkably intricate. It is. For, for, this, for the purpose of being able to ascend and descend. Right, right. And remain buoyant or, or less buoyant. Right. I look at these, these simple things. Well, it, it's, it gets harder to refer to this as simple. Right. You, you, you look at these, these creatures and you 
have to simply be in awe of the creator God who, who gave some simple little creature the ability to build this. This is constructed by the little animal that lives in here. Right. And when did, when did man decide the mathematical equation of this shell or any shell? That, you know, Fibonacci, that Italian mathematician, you know, the golden mean about the, the mathematical equation to strength that is in all kinds of, in all nature. And we find that equation here. Yes, yes. You find it in lots of shells. Now here, look, I want to um, look at, this is, this, is a, this is or was a nautilus, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this has been fossilized, I suppose. Right. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Where does something like this come from? Well, they come from different parts of the world. We found them in, in South America, you know, in the mountainous areas. And what's neat is if you want to bring up some of these other trays, we'll show you. Now, these are called ammonites. Ammonites are fossilized They're heavy ones. Yeah, they're heavy. They're rocks. They're solid rock. So this is obviously a nautilus. That's a nautilus. That one came from Madagascar. Okay. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Mm-hmm. But the rest of these... Well, I guess these are what this was. These uh-huh. are rocks. These are rocks. And this one here is from Minnesota. Right, from the Red River, right over here along the western side of Minnesota. And when you open it up, look what we see inside. Yeah. Now, do, do you find many Nautiluses in Minnesota today? No, of course not. Okay, so what does this suggest to us? It's the flood. It's the flood as the waters receded. You know, you think about the flood covering the earth and, and the animals in the ark. But the oceans, all these shells and everything were survived through the floodwaters, you know, the turbulence and everything, and, and settled. And so there's, that's why there's so much life in the sea, is because it, it was there from creation. I want to ask you where this came from. Well, I saw it on a table. We were camped at the base camp of Everest. And apparently the people there have collected different rocks from the area. And the man said that it came, pointed up the mountain. So apparently it has probably slid down through a rock slide or somebody's gone up. I don't know how many, how many feet they've So where were you? Up. At what altitude were you when you found this? Well, when I found it, when I bought it from this gentleman, we were at 17,000 feet. At 17,000 feet. A little over, actually. As far as we know, there aren't too many oceans at 17,000 feet. No. So this says, once upon a time, either the ocean was at 17,500 feet or 17,000 feet was down at the ocean. Right. Because, of course, mountains were pushed up, up and sometimes right. in a big right. hurry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this appears, would appear to me, particularly with my creationist bent, to demonstrate that at one stage the oceans covered the earth. Things were very, very right. differently. The turbulence. We don't know, you know, the, all the things that went on, the storms and everything, the sea, everything got tossed around. and huh. That sounds to me like evidence of a flood. And we have more. Oof. Now, that's interesting because these came from Nepal. I was in Nepal in Banipar working at the Shear Memorial Hospital. And um, the rock, there were people along the road that were breaking rocks. Because they break these rocks that come down in kind of slides from the, from the mountains. And they are breaking them up with a hammer. And apparently when they break them and they find 
the shell inside, then they toss them aside. They don't want them. They don't. Well, they know that they can probably sell them. For, oh, I see. For something they they're do sure. Want them. So they want them. So they put everything. If they find a shell inside of a rock, then they toss it over to the side. And um, so I bought them from these people. Again, that's a nautilus. That's a nautilus. At however many thousand feet above yeah, sea level. I don't know how high we were there. High. But if high, you were in Nepal, high. you were high. Well, yes, uh-huh. and we were up in Banapar. Actually, just just above us was one of the Everest base camps. And this one, more of the same, sort of, but well, this one looks different. This looks like a clam. To it me. is. That's a tridocna. That's a shell today. And that, interestingly enough, I bought in Machu Picchu in Peru. Oh, my, in the Andes. In the Andes. So a clam in the Andes. Andes. Right, definitely marine. Oh, and yeah. uh, the lady, I kind of circled it for a while and to, whether I was going to buy it or not. She said, you need to buy that. She says, you'll never find another one like it. She said, my father found that up in the hills. So wow. anyway, I just thought it was quite unique. It surely is. And so the seashells tell us a story, they not do. just about the, the, the amazing wonders of creation, but also about the flood story. The flood story. Validating what happened down through time. Right. The waters once covered the earth and left behind telltale signs. Sign. If we look, if we notice, if we know. And in those shells in Nepal, there are actually three different species of mollusks. And there's, there's a scapoda in there, and there's also the bivalve in there. I, I looked through all these shells and found, kept looking for different Different species of shells. Seashells in the mountains. Yeah. Evidence, again, that the story of the Bible is a story you can believe and trust. I'm going to be right back with more in just a moment. The backstory of the Bible is the story of how Satan attacked the character of God and proposed his own system for running the universe, a system of selfishness and taking a system that's been in effect on the earth since humans first sinned. A system that is a complete and utter failure. Join me for The Choice, the final chapter of It Is Written series, prequel of the Bible. We'll discuss how, even in a world damaged by sin, we can still observe evidences of how God intended the world to operate. And we'll look forward to the sequel of the Bible, the glorious future God has in store for those who choose Him. Don't miss The Choice, part five of our five-part series prequel of the Bible on It Is Written TV. Welcome back. Merrily, we've been exploring a magnificent collection of seashells and other related things. Beautiful creatures, Intricate, they speak of an amazing creator. They speak of the way that God purposely designed some of the most incredible things. So let's take a look at what we have before us here. Walk me through this little part of your collection. What have we got? Well, let's start over here with the growth series. We talked about shells and about the fact that they grow and they lay eggs. And we talked about the fact that they grow mega amounts of eggs. And this, these, these here are eggs, huh? Yeah, those are, well, those are actually little villagers. They have actually are going to be little shells. They came out of this. It's an egg case. This, this shell here lays this beautiful, intricate case for his shell, for his eggs. Oh, is that so? 
Yes. And so the eggs are, are in each one of these little sections. Little and you look, there sections. should be a little hole in those little sections where that where they come out when they're developed far enough to survive. Amazing. And these are washed up on the beach. What you're holding in your hand has been washed up on the beach. About how many eggs would be in one of these? Got any idea? Oh, thousands. Thousands, yeah. And then you, in the little box that you have, yeah. those are some that were in there, probably about ready to hatch when they got whipped up on the shore. So they, that's where and their life here, ended, was on the beach. On the beach. Mm-hmm. So these little guys here, and there's lots and lots of them, I'd mm-hmm. like to just get one. And so they're ready to, you say, ready to hatch. Mm-hmm. So from this. Right. And they grow to. That. This. Correct. Isn't that something? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Fantastic. So they, they just grow. I, I, it's like, like things grow. Right. And go from here to here. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And the little animal spends his life in that shell, eating, yep. growing, developing. Well, by the way, this, this fella here, this is heavy. Mm-hmm. But it's not immobile. It moves around. It moves around. It so crawls around. It's the, a, the, the creature inside literally carries it on his back. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a one-unit shell gastropod, which means gastro is stomach, foot. Pod is a foot. So he crawls around on his belly, basically, on his, on his foot. Uh-huh. Hey, something earlier you mentioned. Some of these are carnivorous. Correct. So rather than just filtering, I don't know what they eat. Filter feed is just filter the water and keep whatever they can mm-hmm. find. Mm-hmm. When you say... Some of these creatures are carnivorous. What do they eat? They eat each other. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound very nice. Uh, how does one of these eat one of these? Well, not sure. <laughs> the, the, the horse conch, this Florida, the large Florida shell, will come along and will work its way into the shell underneath the operculum. The operculum being this, being this little, little trap, trap door. door. Mm-hmm. So the- wiggle its way in, attack, basically attack. Tulip shells, which are another one that I could show you, they also are carnivorous, so will attack that whelk. So you have the little creature in here mm-hmm. will spy another creature like this, will creep out from behind his trap door and just go after him and, and kill him and eat him. Mm-hmm. Pretty rough. There's some rough justice down there under the waves. Yes, isn't there, there are. Yeah. This, okay. These are quite shallow water animals, actually. Are they? And 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 where would you find one of these? What what part of the world? That's from Sanibel. Oh, again, mm-hmm. United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now this here, this is a this is a conch, right? Strombus. Mm-hmm. And you find these in the Caribbean. In Caribbean, Florida. Yeah. They were. They're pretty well wiped out in Florida. Yeah, you go to some parts of the Caribbean, they eat these like crazy, and right. so these, mm-hmm. the, the, the supply must be dwindling. It is. They're very it beautiful. Is. It's a very beautiful shell. The animal, again, carries, and it's, it's heavy. It's a heavy shell. It's really heavy. Yeah, so he's a strong animal. There's two notches there where his eye stalks come right on that end, right there. The uh-huh. they're called, yeah. That's called the stromboid notch, and that's where he crawls along and, and is... Looks. Looks from from Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go to the Bahamas and you pay 5 or $10 for one of these, can you bring it back home to the United States? No. No. Ah, no okay, no, so you've got to be careful with that, right? Yeah, they're kind of, they're, they'll probably sell them to you, but they're, they would confiscate them probably at customs okay. because they are endangered. And this one there is this similar one but here, different. This one is different because, I'll let you carry that, that's pretty heavy. Yeah, it is. Um, it's got a little hole in it. Sure. Mm-hmm. And how'd that hole get there? Well, that was the fishermen that did that. They know. They take the two. They look at the notches. One, two nodules back. 
Uh-huh. See, so you look at the back side, turn it over. See, there's one, two, and then they don't cut on the bumps. Oh. On the nodules. Yeah. And that's to get the creature that's out. That's to get the creature out. And so then they take they... and they, well, they pull him the other way. They've just released him from the shell because he's attached, you know. Oh, I see. So they, they bring him out this way. And then they pull him out. Uh. And then they throw the shell overboard. Or if you're lucky enough, like I was, to find a fresh conch pile. What I call fresh means the animal hasn't started to deteriorate. Um, then you can bring him home. I think they'd probably let you come in with, with one that's been cut. I don't know that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. You, okay. If you'll notice the lip on that. That's this mm, part. This part. See, as the an, when the animal's alive, he's constantly maintaining because he goes, slides his part, partial of his body where oh, his yeah. foot comes out. And so it's nice and shiny. He's and polishing it as he he's goes. He's polishing it as, as he goes. There's a layer of Narcus coming down. So you can see it's thick. It's thick there. Yeah. And so that means that he's kind of old. Now this here, this is fascinating, eh? Yeah. Uh, again, these shells are made by the little guy inside. Right. So he, he fashions and forms each of these spikes. That's right. What's the idea? Is this, is this defense? Well, I think it's help, it helps with actually food source because, you see, he lives in a fixed position. Wherever this little villager falls, he lives there his entire life. So on these spines, when you see them in nature, in the, in the ocean, those spines are covered with little sponges and algaes and all kinds of growth around them. So it's just like their own little ecosystem. Uh-huh. And then the fish come and eat this, and then they bring this, and then pretty soon all this life is going on around this shell. And he opens just a little tiny bit. You can just open him just a little ways, just like that. There so he is. Like uh-huh. And then he's filtering his nutrients out of this water. But what keeps the nutrients going on there are all the life around him. So the spines help capture what is around him. Fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But when he's cleaned up, he looks pretty good. Oh, he looks really good? Yeah. Uh, so the spines help create the ecosystem that guarantee he's got a food supply. Right. I Magnificent. Mm-hmm. Now, this here looks like a prehistoric tool, uh, but it's more than that. In fact, look at the way this is made, how this just yeah. goes Fits. together like that. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And this is? It's a hammer oyster. Common name, hammer oyster. A hammer oyster. Mm-hmm. And he lives just in that little dark spot there. That's where the animal lives. It's an elaborate home for a little guy. Yeah. Wonderful. And I would suggest that the reason there's so much variety is because God is a God of variety. Right. And all these various means are God's way of saying, look at what a great creator I am. Yeah. I designed all of this and these processes take place and these animals are given great, I think, intelligence and, and they have tremendous amounts of skill. That's just beautiful. It is. Really, that's, that's it, cool. Now, when you see this in the, in the sea, and where would this come from? Well, that was from Fiji. Okay. And it's just laying, just laying. It doesn't hook to anything. It was just laying. Just there. Just laying on the ground. Cool. Okay. How about these guys? What are these? Okay. These are, this family here is called Pleurotomeria. This is um, common name is a slit shell. You can see the long slit here. Yeah, yeah. All this characteristic of these shells. The only time most people are going to see these would be in a shell store or museum. And that's because of what? That's because they're very deep water. How deep? How deep? Well, I was with the Smithsonian and collected this in about 2,500 feet of water. Oh, wow. Deep. 
Mm-hmm. Not even easy to see down there. Well, it is with the lights with the on, lights. the lights of the submarines. Otherwise, so so these guys, and and I, I don't want to break the break it, but I guess I guess it's pretty hardy. This here is really beautiful, but no one sees it. Right. Even at twenty five hundred feet under the water, where you and I, well, you are the exception, but most people will never go, never see it. There's beauty down there. That's right. Wherever you go, you can see God's handiwork. Yeah, that's even these out of the way places. Yeah. You know. Here again, the flood. Why is yeah? Why did God put all these beautiful things so deep in the ocean? Yeah, it's like you know, for us to explore. That's right. And when you see. get to wherever it is you're going, you can you can see God okay. was here first. Yeah, and He left uh, telltale signs of His wonderful mm-hmm. creative mm-hmm. power. Yeah, I see. And this little the trapdoor that's the operculum. That's the operculum. And He lives mm-hmm. behind that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And he, and he can move that. He can move that at he will. Moves, and he out. moves. He moves. He crawls along. He's yeah. like he's a gastropod. He Comes out like a snail, goes along, and, and it, this is this is Midas. We also collected Midas on that in that same area. This here, what is this? That is the glass sponge. It's an hexaxanella, and it is deep water from the Philippines. And this is the living animal. Sponges are living animals. Okay, mm-hmm. living animals. They're living animals. And if you look at that closely, you can look at the beautiful pattern. And if you touch the end there, it feels like glass sponge because that's what it is. It's sponge, but oh, yeah. it's like glass. Like fiberglass. Sponge. Fiberglass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here, this is God's for, for something living. It seems like it has a few bits missing, but that's okay. Yeah. And what's on the inside? Well. I'm not sure, but I think they're dead fish. Oh, yeah? And we just saw a special on Nat Geo about them being crabs in there. Ah. But the, the story, or the legend is um, that the fish, when they're very teeny tiny, they swim in and out of this little basket. This is called a Venice, wet, it's called a Venice wedding basket. And the little fish swim in and out, in and out. And then... If you don't get busy and swim out, pretty soon if you're going to grow, you're not going to be able to get out the little hole. Oh, is that so? So you get a male and a female in here, and they grow, and they keep growing, and pretty soon they're never going to get out. And then if they reproduce, their little babies are going to call, and they're going to get away, and they can swim out and Ah. swim out. And these are presented to a bride and groom at the wedding in the Philippines. And it's presented as till death do you part. Because oh, you cannot, cannot, yeah, leave, yeah. cannot leave your home uh-huh. in this basket. Okay, one last thing I want to ask you about. In the Bible, you don't read lots of mentions of seashells. There's Lydia who traded with shells. But there is the pearl of great price. Right. Talk to me about that. Well, every shell basically is capable of producing a pearl because a pearl is an irritant that comes into the shell. The irritant comes into the mantle where the shell or the liquid is being produced by the shell and the first instinct is to get rid of it. Just like if something, you and I have a problem, we just get rid of it, you know, ignore it. But pretty soon it's pretty fixed in there and it can't. So as it's building the narco, narcos from the shell, it starts coating that irritant, being a sand, rock, or whatever. And so every time it secretes something from the shell, it puts it around that irritant to smooth it and, and cover it. So in that process, a pearl is made out of the shell. So, of course, the pearl of great price was something harvested 
from a seashell. From a seashell. So mm-hmm. Jesus, in one of his great illustrations, Jesus, in one of his great lessons, spoke about a seashell. Right. Which produced a pearl very valuable. Very valuable. And you think about where they were and where the best pearls are today, like off the coast of Australia, Japan, you know, where the shells, pearls are being produced, the shells that produce the best pearls. How did that shell there produce the pearl that ended up in the Middle East? So the story would indicate that the pearl of great price was of great price, partly because in all likelihood it had been imported from a great distance away. Yes. Fantastic. And in that time, people didn't know about cultivating pearls. Now we have cultured pearls where they take a shell. I want to show you an example. And an example of, this is from Western Australia, where they've actually gone in and taken and put a plug here and let the shell put the narcus on top of it as it's growing. And then they take this, cut it out, put the two halves together, polish it off so you never would realize what, you, what they've done. The odds of a pearl producing, a shell producing a pearl are great odds. Sure, very, a, yeah. And especially a perfect pearl. And here are examples of little pieces of pearls, mostly produced by the strombus. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can see the color, the color variations. And they're magnificent. They're beautiful, but yeah. they're irregular. They're sure. not perfect. They, would, they wouldn't command a price anywhere. You know, we don't know in Christ's time what, you know, they knew the value of a pearl because Paul talks a lot in the Bible about wearing pearls and about casting your pearls to the swine. And so they knew there was some value in the pearl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been fantastic. A lot of fun. It's been amazing, enlightening, and for me, a great encouragement that we have a wonderful creator who has produced some incredible things. 